Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 50, The Verdun Effect. In the last episode, we began our discussion of the Somme campaign by covering its foundations prior to events at Verdun. This week, we're going to pick up where we left off and trace how the plans for the Somme were affected by the German attack. Plans for the Somme were still in their infancy when the German 5th Army launched their offensive at Verdun. Falkenhayn had planned to bleed France white by forcing them to commit their reserves in defense of the city. At first, Joffre refused to bite. But when Fort Douaumont fell on the 25th of February, public outrage forced his hand. Under Peyton's leadership, the French soon turned the tide. Their artillery roared back in defiance, turning the battlefield into a scene of nauseating horror. But the Germans kept coming, expanding and pushing their offensive onto both sides of the Meuse. Through blizzards, spring thaw, and sweltering summer heat, France and Germany were locked in a death grip, their armies pounding each other into oblivion. It was France's greatest test since September 1914, and for Germany, a coldly calculated endeavor to achieve victory. As Verdun contorted into the monstrosity we are now familiar with, the Somme too became something different. In December 1915, it was the Big Push, a combined Anglo-French endeavor designed to rupture Germany's defenses and force a breakthrough. With the French army now pinned down in the south, the Somme's dynamics were about to change. The plan would shift from a French-led decisive stroke to a British-led battle of attrition. As we'll see, this meant it would be a smaller operation than originally intended, and would put Britain on equal footing with France on the Western Front. The Somme had also changed in purpose. By July the 1st, it was no longer an Anglo-French offensive. It was now a relief effort aimed at saving the French army and stabilizing the Entente. This last change is a big one. Not only would this shift the main groupings of German divisions, it would mark the ascendancy of the British army on the Western Front. A good place to pick up from last day is in March 1916. By this point, it was clear that Verdun was the main German attack. German efforts on both sides of the Meuse had been checked, but the grinder continued to churn. While Verdun was a Franco-German battle, it had irreversible effects on Britain's war as well. It put her in a position where she had to come to France's aid. If nothing else, honor dictated she could not sit by while Germany squeezed the life from her senior partner. Douglas Haig had just returned from a trip to London, where he took part in a series of talks with Lord Kitchener. The two men had debated at length the impact of Verdun on British prospects. Haig predicted that the battle would end in one of two ways, either in stalemate or a German victory. Kitchener agreed with Haig's assessment that whichever outcome came to fruition, Britain would have to respond. This was a radically different conception of war than she was used to. Every fresh assault brought urgent appeals for the British to do something, anything to relieve the pressure. Haig understood this sense of urgency, and knew that while Verdun continued, it ate away at French reserves earmarked for the Somme. The problem was that Haig's options were limited. The BEF remained under strength, and he would not commit them to battle until they were ready. While sympathetic to French anxieties, Haig was careful not to overextend his hand. Without offering military responses, he was assisting the French in other ways. At the end of February, Haig had fulfilled an earlier promise and took over the entirety of the 10th Army's front, but by doing so, had reduced the number of free British divisions from 25 to just 15. 
Kitchener understood Haig's dilemma. He warned him to be cautious of the French, and not to attack until he felt his army was adequately prepared. In a telling remark, Haig responded to Kitchener that he did not have an army in France, only a collection of divisions untrained for the field. The actual fighting army, Haig said, would evolve from them. Haig's statement accurately reflects the difficult task that lay before him. The BEF had evolved from its previous incarnation, and it fell to Haig to prepare this force for battle. By 1916, its field gun arsenal had more than doubled, from 324 to 716, and between January and July, some 200,000 men among 17 divisions had crossed the channel. By the end of the year, this would jump to 53 divisions, putting the BEF's rifle strength at over 600,000. In other words, it had tripled in size in just under a year and a half, an expansion only comparable to the Soviet army of the Second World War. In a perfect world, Haig would have preferred to see the BEF complete its training before being sent to France, as Kitchener had originally intended, but the misadventures of 1915 ensured this was no longer possible. Before the BEF was combat ready, Haig first had to deal with the unglamorous world of administration and logistics. After all, an expansion of this magnitude played host to a myriad of issues. Ensuring the army was well supplied was Haig's foremost concern. Roads needed digging, and railway and shipping schedules needed configuration. Communication lines, field stations, hospitals, and supply depots all had to be built from scratch or modified from existing infrastructure. Then, once the infantry began to arrive, they needed to be organized and familiarized with the duties of trench warfare. Some units, which had spent the last year in training depots, were broken up and integrated into existing formations, for the purposes of gaining valuable frontline experience. Molding this conglomerate into a unified entity would require time. Trained officers who had passed through staff colleges were in short supply, which opened the gates to civilian NCOs. It was these non-commissioned officers whom Haig would depend on to implement trading regimes and maintain morale. Although these NCOs were eager and motivated, Haig appreciated the risks of commanding such an untried force. Without the acid test of actual combat, they were little more than a dull instrument. To ensure best results, Haig's only option was to delay actual operations, and allow the BEF to receive maximum training. While Haig was aware of the crushing burden placed on himself in the new army, he was not ignorant of the coalition's demands. On March the 16th, Ferdinand Foch, commander of the Northern Army Group, presented a new plan for the Somme campaign, a reduced version of the one he presented on Valentine's Day. Here, we can see the Verdun effect up close. Prior to the German offensive, Foch had envisioned 70 divisions, 45 French and 25 British, attacking across a 45-kilometer front. As we discussed last day, this was a massive undertaking, and Joffre doubted the British were up to the task. Haig, although hating the insinuation of British inferiority, begrudgingly agreed it was beyond the strength of his untested troops. With the onset of Verdun, however, everything changed. Foch's latest plan was much more compact. Instead of 70 divisions, it was 24, 5 French and 13 British, plus 6 British Reserve Divisions. The front had been reduced as well, to just 25 kilometers, with the British occupying 16 kilometers between the Somme and the Ancre, and the French 12 kilometers astride the Somme in the south. There is a bit more geography in this episode, so I've posted a map to the greatwarpodcast.podbean.com. I suggest keeping a tab open for easy reference. Although the optics had changed, 
Foch still saw the battle as a sustained attritional operation. Its main goal was not to capture towns or strongpoints, but to engage the German army directly and force Falkenhayn to send his reserves away from Verdun in the east. What mattered to Foch was not objective, but method. In particular, how to control the battle once it got underway. We've already discussed these strategic and tactical problems facing army commanders on the Western Front, so there is no need to go in depth about it here. But the key thing to remember is that battlefield communication remained the great intangible. As soon as attacking troops went over the top and advanced into the open, the methods commanders could use to communicate with their men were severely limited. Portable radios, which could be carried on the backs of infantry, had not been invented. Radio sets at the time were bulky and required telephone lines to be laid across open ground, which made them vulnerable to shell fire or shrapnel. The only semi-reliable methods were visual signals, messenger pigeons, and of course the runner. Obviously, it takes little imagination to envisage the problems involved in any of these systems. Foch was eager to incorporate the lessons of 1915. One of the things we've seen time and time again is that the opening phases of operations usually went well. Attacking infantry were able to secure the first and sometimes second lines of German trenches before they were repulsed. The issue, Foch noted, was not breaking the trench line. It was anticipating the moment when a breakthrough was possible. Once attacking infantry entered the enemy trench, they were left to defend themselves against well-organized counterattacks. It was the junior officers, NCOs, and privates who took control, and their radius of command was limited to shouting distances. Once committed to battle, higher command could do little to influence the fighting. The Germans, of course, knew their positions better than the Allies, and kept their reserves barracked in rear areas, only to unleash them once the attackers had entered the labyrinth. Since Foch was well-versed in these difficulties, he knew the only way for the Somme to be successful was through careful monitoring of firepower and infantry. Cutting wire and silencing the enemy's defenses could only be accomplished by marrying the two branches. The artillery could suppress, but the infantry had to overwhelm. This formula had shown promise in 1915. As we saw at the Battle of Luz, British forces had penetrated the second line of trenches, but the reserve divisions, which were destined to exploit the gap, did not arrive until the following day. The break in action had allowed the Germans to retake their positions and defend them against renewed British attacks. Foch wanted a systematic approach, step by step, which allowed the heavy guns and infantry to reorient themselves for the next part of the operation. It was about biting off small sections of the front and consolidating them before pressing onward. In this, Foch was careful to avoid setting concrete objectives. For example, geography dictated that the main British effort would be directed towards the valleys and spurs leading up to the strategic plateau known as Pozier Ridge which anchored the German defense line northeast of Albert. But this did not mean the ridge had to be taken in a single stroke. Instead, Pozier Ridge was a marker, which the British would steadily advance to, forcing the Germans to commit more reserves to the area. There were a number of smaller objectives which the British would work towards while en route to Pozier, namely Thiepval, Oviers, and Boiselle. Securing these secondary objectives would give army commanders time to assess the situation and make adjustments before pressing on. More importantly, it would prevent high command from losing control as the infantry advanced. A steady advance with careful monitoring was infinitely more valuable than squandering manpower in a hasty attempt at a breakthrough. Douglas Haig agreed on Foch's reduced front, although with a caveat. With Verdun chewing away at French reserves, this meant greater British involvement. 
Haig was aware of this and never shrank from his commitment, but he did raise a flag when it came to the offensive start date. On Valentine's Day, Haig and Joffre had agreed to launch the attack on July the 1st, but with the burden shifting from French to British hands, Haig was no longer comfortable with the arrangement. A side effect of this was that as French divisions were diverted south, British divisions were taking over larger sections of the front. For example, the British 1st Army had taken over the front opposite Vimy Ridge, 2nd Army occupied positions in the Ypres salient, while 3rd and 4th Armies relieved the French sector from Arras to Albert. Paradoxically, while France's commitment to the Somme shrank, so too did the number of British divisions. Haig's armies were committed to defending areas elsewhere while France dealt with the crisis in the south. Although events would make it a moot point, Haig wanted to delay his assault until mid-August, much to the frustration of Joffre. Haig was all in on Joffre's strategy, but he knew the present situation altered many things. Haig took planning for the battle seriously, because it knew it would be his untested BEF leading the charge. What we see here is an interesting dynamic between Haig and Joffre, which I alluded to last episode. Throughout Verdun, Joffre would request British counteroffensives, which Haig would correctly refuse. While Verdun accomplished many things, namely upsetting the Entente's plans and nearly breaking the French spirit, it failed to bring a crisis in inter-allied relations. Remember, one of the pillars of Falkenhayn's strategy was to evoke an aggressive response from the Entente. He expected the British to panic and launch an ill-prepared attack which the Germans could easily deflect. Instead, Haig stood his ground, knowing that the best course was to trust in one powerful stroke that summer. There is a lot to be said about this. Had Haig been intimidated by Joffre and attacked, let's say in March or April, well before the BEF was up to snuff, it would have fed directly into Falkenhayn's plans and ended in disaster. This point alone shows that Haig understood the bigger picture. It was not about to send his men into battle until he was confident in their abilities. Criticisms of Haig being a reactionary or lacking in initiative lose all momentum when faced with this argument. Instead, Anglo-French relations were remarkably calm in spite of the circumstances. Communication between the army heads played a crucial role. Joffre and Haig remained in constant communication. Joffre, while hoping for a British response, was careful not to press Haig and allowed the British to make their preparations. This delay, of course, meant Falkenhayn was forced to extend his commitment to Verdun as well, which inevitably weakened the German presence elsewhere. Besides, the main burden passing over to the British gave Haig additional leverage, allowing him to fight a war based on Britain's strength. That is, planning a battle unique to her interests. By April 1916, the Somme was no longer intended to be a decisive campaign. It was now an offensive to relieve the French at Verdun by engaging the German army on the Western Front. While Haig and Joffre could give the rubber stamp on tactical plans, formulating how the battle would be fought was left to the army commanders involved. French and British forces would fight side by side, but how the two armies would go about fighting depended on which side of the river you stood on. The Somme was to be a joint effort of two armies. The British 4th Army, under Sir Henry Rawlinson, and the French 6th Army, commanded by Emile Fayol. These two men shared similar views on tactics, yet on July the 1st, would execute their plans with differing levels of success. We'll start with Rawlinson. Lieutenant General Henry Rawlinson, commanding officer of 4th Army, was tasked with planning the tactical side of the British assault. An intelligent and efficient general, 
Rawlinson had a sense of self-importance which made him an easy target for critics of British First World War generalship. He was not the most popular man in the army, but Haig felt he was best suited for the job. The two had worked together in the battles of 1915 and established an effective working relationship. While not always in agreement, they were able to defer on one another which usually ended in compromise. Rawlinson was a forward thinker and spent much of his pre-war years studying the changing nature of warfare and how to implement new military technologies. Like Foch, Rawlinson believed in slow, methodical advances, sacrificing surprise for efficiency. On April the 3rd, Rawlinson submitted his first plan to Haig. It called for deliberate, controlled advances, aimed at capturing one German position at a time. This was a strategy Rawlinson termed bite and hold. Haig had his reservations. While he agreed that limited advances were preferable, he knew the BEF lacked the manpower and technical skills to apply that strategy effectively. Bite and hold could only come from extensive combat experience. The French army were better trained in this method, having benefited from 1915 operations and greater weight and firepower. Haig's second reservation was clearer cut. He judged the plan too limited for such a large operation. If the attack was to gain the enemy's attention, it had to be launched with surprise and ferociousness. Haig also felt Rawlinson's vision would not have sat well with the French. After all, France was hemorrhaging into the Meuse, and a lumbering British offensive was unlikely to buy much time. The planning phase of the Somme was rife with ambiguities. With responsibility shifting to the British, the details of how the British and French armies would cooperate remained unresolved. In February, it was the French making the main attack while the British fought in support. This made sense since the French army was the larger and more experienced body. But now, the British army was the larger unit, and thus the responsibility of facilitating the French portion of the attack fell to them. Joffe and Haig disagreed on three principles, coordination, nature, and objective, and throughout March and April worked to resolve these differences. The convoluted discussions that followed illustrate the headache-inducing nature of joint planning. The first issue, coordination, related to the British attack north of the Somme. Would the Anglo-French armies attack at the same time, or were the British obliged to attack a few days early, thus drawing German reserves northwards? It was an important question. Joffe wanted a coordinated attack in both time and place, while Foch did not. The divergent issue being that if one army failed in its objectives, what was the contingency? Furthermore, launching separate attacks offered some benefits, namely the ability to draw on enemy reserves and secure important positions. The inherent risk here being that if one army was to fight independently, it had full jurisdiction over what its objectives would be. The second issue, the nature of the attack, related to the gulf in tactical skills between the two armies, which inevitably influenced coordination. Haig and Joffe favored a fast approach, hitting the breach with speed and catching the enemy off guard. Foch and Rawlinson, on the other hand, believed in a limited, controlled approach. It was likely that the French would adopt the latter tactic, as they possessed the greater skill and firepower. Haig, however, doubted whether the BEF was capable of following suit. We'll talk more about this later in the episode, but the key difference between Haig and Rawlinson's approaches is that Rawlinson demanded more from the artillery. Under bite and hold, the infantry are essentially reduced to consolidating and defending. In theory, a prolonged heavier bombardment of high-explosive shell should be enough to destroy successive layers of enemy dugouts, 
leaving the infantry to mop up and begin moving towards the next objective. The problem, as Hag pointed out, was that the BEF lacked both the firepower and technical skills to make it work. For one, it required the guns to be deadly accurate, and to adjust their fire based on aerial reports. Then, once the position was secure, the artillery would have to recalibrate for the next objective. This was particularly tricky. Gunners would not have the benefit of ranging shots, and the stress of combat only added to the exhaustive list of potential issues. Recalibration would have to be swift, fast, and damn near mechanical for it to work. Douglas Hag, while not dismissing that the BEF could reach this level of efficiency, doubted that an inexperienced army could pull it off in their first major test. Wisely, Hag believed that the safest option was for the infantry to cross no man's land and get past the German defenses in the shortest amount of time. Paradoxically, he also believed that a shorter, more intense bombardment would guarantee the same results. The difficulty being that there would be less time to monitor whether it had done its job correctly. Without proper scouting, the first wave could find themselves running into uncut wire and active machine guns, as would be the case on July the 1st. This fundamental disagreement over the nature of the battle would plague Anglo-French planners for much of the spring and summer. Debating whether Haig or Rawlinson were correct in their assessments is ahistoric. As we'll see in future episodes, there's no way the BEF could have succeeded in either method given their limitations that summer. But if anything, it shows that Haig and Rawlinson were diverging in their views of what the battle should be. Their failure to reach an agreement would lead to tragic consequences as the battle unfolded. Under the broadest of umbrellas, the plans for the Somme can be boiled down to one thing. The French trying to get the British to secure objectives which were beneficial to French aims. Rawlinson and Haig, naturally, had to consider the needs of their army over those of the French. They were not blind to the effects of Verdun, but they were also aware that the BEF was ill-prepared. Expecting too much could spell disaster, while scaling down operations was detrimental to coalition unity. With the British dragging their heels, the French were growing suspicious. Throughout the deliberations, Foch noted that the British might not be able to reach their desired objectives. This worried him, since the 6th Army south of the Somme risked having his flank exposed as it moved in support. Commanding the French 6th Army was a man by the name of Emile Fayol, who emerged as one of the best field commanders on the Western Front. In many ways, Fayol is a ghost in popular histories of the First World War. He is often overshadowed by his more famous countrymen like Joffre, Pétain, Nevel, and Foch. Fayol was a contemporary of these figures. He attended the same schools and spent much of his education in the same classes as Foch. Like his former classmate, Fayol was an astute student of modern war. He was recalled out of retirement in 1914 and fought with distinction in the bloody battles that August. It was Fayol who checked the German advance at Nancy, just southeast of Verdun which established a static trench line continuing to the Swiss Alps. During this dark time, Fayol established himself as a soldier's general, who got things done through a combination of common sense, clear thinking, and capacity for hard work. As an artillerist, Fayol knew firsthand the awesome firepower of modern weaponry. He had seen its effects on both sides up close. Like Pétain, he was concerned about the lives of his men. As a divisional commander, he made frequent visits to the front, earning the affectionate nickname General Duckport for his habit of walking through the frontline trenches. On more than a few occasions, Fayol had come under enemy shellfire, barely escaping with his own life. Needless to say, this drove his staff mad, but endeared him to the troops he commanded. 
It should come as no surprise, then, that Fayol despised the attritional doctrine. He doubted whether it could produce the outcome envisioned by Joffen Haig. Like so many of his colleagues, though, the attack at Verdun had changed his tune. While still doubting the benefits of attrition, he understood that that was where the war was heading. In Verdun, Fayol took a lesson from German tactics. While impressed with the horrific bombardment and speedy advance, he suspected such tactics were obsolete. All too often it had led to false dawns, only to be stalled by the confusion in the enemy trench system. Like Foch, Fayol believed in methodical progression. To do battle properly, it was important to maintain enough momentum to carry the infantry from one point to the next. Tasked with planning the French assault to stride the Somme, Fayol ensured his stamp on the battle. The objectives for 6th Army were hammered out in a series of discussions with Foch throughout April and May. Fayol was to capture the German defense line in the Maricor salient, just north of the river. At the same time, a second attack south of the river was to drive towards the plateau north of Flucourt. Capturing the strategic ridge would isolate German forces on either side, denying their positions from Feliz to Estres, a crucial observation post for their artillery. All of these locations are posted on the map. By the end of May, however, the purpose of the French assault had shifted. Reduced in scale by Verdun, Fayol's attack was now a subsidiary advance to assist the British. As Foch sardonically put it, he was to march only to ensure the British marched as well. To Fayol, however, this changed nothing. He understood the importance of his task. As long as the Germans held Flucor Heights, the chances for Allied attacks in the south were speculative at best. Despite these changes, Fayol and 6th Army had clear objectives. These same, however, could not be said for the British. As Fayol set to work drawing up his plans, the British had yet to nail down their approach. Haig and Rawlinson were still in disagreement over the fast versus slow advance. On April 19th, Rawlinson submitted his second, more ambitious plan. Rawlinson had extended the attack front by several kilometers, and aimed to reach the second line of German trenches in one go. This shows two things. The first, it indicates that Rawlinson capitulated to Haig's hypothesis that the battle should be fast and far-reaching. More interestingly, were Hag's handwritten comments. Rawlinson made clear that once the enemy's positions were secure, the operation would be sustained over a considerable period of time. Hag responded to this by writing, No, the enemy must be beaten, essentially ordering Rawlinson to complete his objectives as swiftly as possible. The two men had yet to hash out their differences. Now, it seemed that Hag had misinterpreted what Rawlinson proposed. This new problem arose over what to do once the enemy position was taken. If the attack succeeded in taking the German second line, did that mean the mission was over? In Haig's mind, yes. But for Rawlinson, it was just the first phase. The Germans would no doubt try to dislodge them, so it was necessary to continue battle until the Germans were exhausted. Assisting the French was the operational goal, but gauging how far Britain would have to go was a whole other question. At what point could Haig decide that his army had done its part? Was the BEF to fight on indefinitely, or could the only stop when Joff was satisfied? For Haig, fighting on without a clear goal was detrimental. It wasn't that Rawlinson failed to supply one, it was Haig's presumption that Rawlinson's plan necessitated a prolonged offensive. As the crisis at Verdun worsened, Haig was convinced that the effort had to have decisive results. In other words, it had to appease French demands but also deliver a substantial blow to Germany's grip on the Western Front. 
Another factor, which often gets overlooked, is that the Germans were not letting the untested BEF sit comfortably. The Germans had launched three sizable attacks in the meantime. On April 27th, they attacked near the old battlefields of Luz with a curtain of gas, a mixture of chlorine and phosgene, which produced some 2,000 casualties, mostly from the Irish regiment stationed in the area. This attack was soon followed by a second assault on the Vimy Ridge, which succeeded in wrestling the northern corner from Allied hands. Then, on June the 2nd, a third attack against the British 2nd Army occurred at Montsorel near Ypres. This high ground was defended by the experienced Canadian Corps. Over two weeks of hellish fighting, the Germans were briefly established on the crest of Montsorel. This was a crushing blow to Allied morale, since these bluffs were the only portion of the ridge still in Allied hands. Subsequent counterattacks would drive the Germans back off the ridge, but the audacity of the attack was deeply troubling. Nearly 9,000 Canadians had been killed or wounded, with the Germans suffering about two-thirds that number. For our purposes, the period from May to June is crucial in understanding how the Somme rounded into shape. At the end of May, there remained a lingering issue which hounded British planning. The nature of the opening bombardment. Haig stuck to his principle favoring a short hurricane bombardment. After all, there were twice the number of guns available in 1916, thanks in part to Lloyd George and the Ministry of Munitions. Haig believed this would be enough to paralyze the German defense line. Rawlinson, on the other hand, favored slow and methodical. After meeting with French brass, an agreement was finally reached. Haig was convinced to side with Rawlinson's view. While a slower bombardment sacrificed the element of surprise, it did provide benefits. Namely, allowing the destruction of enemy strongpoints and wire fortifications to be closely monitored. The issue here, and this is important, is that by adopting Rawlinson's barrage, the British made two missteps which would have deadly consequences. The first is that methodical bombardments only work if you're able to spread weight of fire across an entire front. Guns have to be positioned further apart to ensure an equal amount of weight is thrown against the intended target. The purpose behind this is to prevent the enemy from guessing where the main assault will hit. The problem was that the BEF still did not have an adequate number. As the front extended, so too did the gaps in gun concentration. Some sections of the German line would thus receive more shelling than others, and to make matters worse, British shells were of poor quality. It is estimated that at least one-third of the shells fired in the preliminary bombardment were duds an inevitable result of a rapidly expanding armaments industry. In short, Haig and Rawlinson overestimated their strength. Although aware of this danger, Haig sought to paper over these cracks by extending the bombardment for a full week. The second misstep relates to intelligence reports on German positions. We'll be seeing an example of this in just a few minutes, but one of Haig's most controversial characteristics was his boundless optimism. He can be called many things, but a defeatist is not one of them. Haig was fiercely loyal to his intelligence chief, John Chartres, who has been widely criticized for feeding Haig overly optimistic reports on German strength. In the weeks leading to the Somme, Chartres, who began each morning with brandy and soda, had greatly underestimated the strength of German positions. Prisoner interviews and diary entries were seen as proof that the enemy was near breaking point. Chartres, who shared in Haig's optimism, made the human error of believing these reports too literally. To be clear, Chartres did not cater these reports to suit Haig's wishes. But since Chartres personally believed German morale was low, any evidence which indicated this was only reinforcing his preconception. 
In reality, German morale on the Somme was fairly high. The Somme sector had been quiet since 1914, allowing the Germans to construct deep, fortified dugouts in the dry chalk. These quarters were so advanced that some even had beds in running water. In short, the Germans were quite comfortable, and more importantly, well protected from enemy action. For reasons still unclear, Chartres and Haig overlooked this, and only believed what they wanted to believe. By the end of May, things were finally rounding into shape. At an inter-allied conference on the 26th, a concrete plan was set. Rawlinson's nine divisions would attack on a 16-kilometer front, from Montauban in the south up to the Ancre River. At the same time, three more of 4th Army's divisions would secure its flank on a 4-kilometer front north of the Ancre. Meanwhile, Fayol's 6th Army would attack in the sector between Montauban and the Somme, in the direction of Flucourt. The 4th and 6th Armies would advance on an eastern axis parallel to the Somme. The specific details and local objectives we'll get into next day. Interestingly enough, there was still no start date in place. Haig weighed the pros and cons of holding out until mid-August, when the BEF had more guns and high-explosive shell. When Haig floated this option, it was met with a predictable explosion from Joff. Haig pivoted, agreeing that early July would be the best option for all parties. Just one month before the battle was to start, there was a flurry of activity. On June the 1st, Haig met with Chartres, who predictably gave Haig the good news. Throughout Verdun, Haig had been aware that the Germans were suffering just as badly as the French, and the latest prisoner reports seemed to indicate as such. The most recent batch of prisoners looked like terrified children rather than a disciplined army. When pressed for information, it was revealed that some were as young as 19. The 1916 class had already been called up. In Haig's opinion, this cemented his belief that the cream of the German army had been deployed to Verdun. Bad news for the French, but good news for the British. This meant that the Germans in the trenches opposite them were fresh and untested. Haig wrongly assumed they could be broken in a fortnight. Instead of using this information to make an informed decision, Haig made the familiar mistake of using it to confirm his own preconceptions. By the summer, Haig suspected that Germany was feeling the crunch, and his latest batch of intel only served to confirm this. The great irony here is that Verdun had worn down the Germans as much as the French, but it was British optimism which squandered the advantage. Then, a miracle happened in the east. Three days later, Brusilov's army group rumbled to life, smashing the Austro-Hungarian front in Galicia. This obliged Falkenhayn to send four additional divisions to the east, which had not gone unnoticed by the Allies. Brusilov's success was welcome news, although it was ranged against the Austrian and not German army, and nonetheless showed that Russia had greatly improved, which boded well for Anglo-French prospects. But Russian bravery was soon undermined by the death of Lord Kitchener, who, as we discussed last day, drowned while en route to Russia when his ship struck a mine. The backbone of Britain's war was no more. Replacing Lord Kitchener as Secretary of State for War was David Lloyd George, who had just returned from a trip to Paris where he discussed munitions with his French counterpart, Albert Thomas. The French, reported Lloyd George, were becoming rattled. On June the 6th, he spoke to the war consul in London and gave a sobering assessment. He warned that two years of desperate fighting had exhausted the French and that Britain must come to her aid before they were defeated. 
The day after Lloyd George presented his findings, Fort Vaux fell and the Germans were making a final dash towards the crest overlooking Verdun. As their advance inched towards Fleury, Joffre sent additional divisions to buttress the line. As a result, the French commitment on the Somme shrank again, limiting their front to just a thin section south of Merucourt. Between the Somme and the Anka, the British would now be attacking all alone. At this moment, Haig took one last look at the map and envisioned the battle playing out much differently. While Haig never doubted the operation would take time, he now began to speculate if a breach was possible on the first day. Perhaps he was encouraged by Brusilov, but it seems that Joffre had a role as well. In a letter to Haig dated June 6th, Joffre argued that the coming offensive could, and I quote, succeed in knocking out the German army on the Western Front, or at least an important part of it, end quote. This here is a source of major controversy. Historians who demonize Haig continually argue that he expected British forces to smash through and reopen mobile warfare all in one day. This is not the case. While Haig hoped for a major success, he did not expect it. But he did provide a new plan in case the German line collapsed. Two weeks before the battle was to begin, Haig had ordered two cavalry divisions to be attached to Herbert Goh's reserve army, which was positioned west of Rawlinson's 4th. The purpose of the reserve army was to act as a conveyor belt, feeding 4th Army with reinforcements, but was also ready to exploit the breach once it was made. On June 20th, Haig informed his army commanders that 4th Army's objective remained the same. It was to capture and consolidate Pozier Ridge. But, if the German defenses broke down, the vanguard would leapfrog and occupy the 3rd position. At the same time, two cavalry divisions would push through the thin line and wheel north towards Bapalm, with the intention of pinning German reserves south of Arras. To simplify, this not only extended the frontage, but also changed the direction of attack, meaning the British were now diverging from the French advance. This sounds an awful lot like Haig was envisioning a major breakthrough on July 1st, and it certainly shows him at his overly ambitious worst. But because the amendment was made so close to the start date, is for interpreted to mean Haig expected a breakthrough at the last minute. This simplified view overlooks a few things, namely, that these amendments were not written in stone. Haig had written, if the German advances broke down, and not when. This was Haig planning for varying degrees of success. One thing he did not want was for a breach to open up and have no one ready to exploit it. He had learned that painful lesson in 1915. Accordingly, Haig revised the Somme plan to fit all contingents. Was it a bit late in the game? Certainly yes. But had Haig ignored such opportunities and stuck to previous decisions like cast iron, the results would have been equally regrettable. Let's not also forget that once the Somme got underway, tactical decisions fell to Henry Rawlinson, and from there, they trickled down to corps, divisional, and battalion levels. Haig could set operational strategy but had little influence on the troops who actually fought the battle. As we've already seen, Rawlinson did not expect that a breakthrough was possible. In many ways, Rawlinson detested the idea of being given cavalry, which he himself did not expect to use. This fundamental disagreement between Haig and Rawlinson will have deadly consequences come July the 1st. So it goes without saying that the planning phase for the Somme was a convoluted mess, with plans being scrapped and redrawn as circumstances dictated. Joint operations are always complicated, but these difficulties are magnified 
when the theater of operation lies in the country of the senior ally. Ill feelings between Joffe and Foch, Hag and Rawlinson, were inevitable given these circumstances. There are two things we can glean from all of this. The first is that despite some challenges, coalition unity remained strong. It's wrong to assume that because Britain and France were allies, their partnership was faultless. The remarkable thing is that throughout the Battle of Verdun, neither side lost their heads. Although there were some tense meetings, with insults muttered in their respective languages, they were always in tune with what the other was planning. They hammered out their differences in negotiation, not by reacting to crises brought on by self-absorption. As we mentioned last week, the Somme campaign marked the beginning, not the end of a new type of war. With the Austro-German alliance straining, the Anglo-French partnership was strengthening. This would alter the power balance on the Western Front for the next two years. The second point relates to Douglas Haig. Haig made mistakes in his plans for the Somme. His failure to pin down his differences with Rawlinson is first and foremost. By amending the battle plan, he had put Rawlinson in a delicate spot. Would Rawlinson exploit a potential breakthrough, or would he stick to his limited approach? This question remained unanswered when troops climbed over the top. Despite this, Haig strove to get the plans for the Somme right, and this certainly challenges the myth that he was stupid and unimaginative. While it does not absolve him of his mistakes, it does show that things were not as neat as his critics like to imagine. Haig had to balance Britain's interests with those of France, and to figure out how his inexperienced army would match up against a battle-hardened enemy. In short, what we'll see on July the 1st was not the result of Haig's planning, but an overconfidence was spread from Haig all the way down to the frontline private. The pressures of Redon and demands of the coalition had put the BEF in an untenable position. Haig would have had to have been of supernatural intelligence if the Somme was to go off without a hitch. His critics are quick to point out his mistakes, but never offer the viable alternatives. At least now, we have a clearer picture of what he was faced with, and why the Somme would never be the battle it was intended to be. As you are aware, we are coming up on yet another holiday season, so this will be our last episode of 2016. But fear not, we will be back in the new year with our final prelude to the Somme before launching into the campaign proper. From there, we'll cover the first two months of the battle before diverting to events elsewhere the dismissal of Falkenhayn, the end of Verdun, and the entry of a new belligerent, Romania, who, inspired by Russian successes in the east, would cast her lot with the Entente. There are still lots to come, so I would like to thank everyone who supported the show throughout the year. I know I wasn't able to post as often as I would have liked, but I am happy so many of you have stuck by. Your feedback helped me stay motivated while I was away, and without it, I don't think this show would have lasted as long. I want to wish you all a safe and happy holiday, and I will see you all in the new year. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. I would like to thank our most recent donor, Jeffrey, and extend an additional thank you to all listeners who have made donations throughout the year. If you would like to make a donation, the button is up on the homepage. Donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources, which I am always on the hunt for. I would also like to send a special thanks to listener Rachel Maloche, 
who since episode 49 has kindly taken on the task of helping edit the transcripts prior to recording. It's great having a fresh pair of eyes to read these things over because there was stuff I never would have caught. She's done a tremendous job. I can already hear an improvement, and I'm sure you can as well. If you want to help promote the podcast, the best way to do that is to go to iTunes and write a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 50 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again shortly.